All right, we're going to read the Bible now. So if you have a phone or a Bible, feel free to get that out. Um, But it will also come up on the screen behind me. Um, So we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. So Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, this morning, as I mentioned, we're actually moving through a part of the Bible in a book of the Bible called Acts and right at the beginning, and we're actually diving back into a passage that we started in last week. Um, on Jesus' commission to his people to go out to the ends of the earth. Now, it might seem funny on a week where we're doing dedications to be diving into a passage like this, and you might think, I don't know what this has to do with parents raising their kids or that sort of thing. But it's a topic that has surprising relevance, not just for families, but for all people. I reckon reflecting recently and reading a few books just around you know, generational issues and concerns for parents, that there are probably two two stories from Greek mythology that would summarize the fears of parents from two different generations. And that would be the story of Icarus and then the story of Narcissus. Now, if you're not familiar with these stories, they're they're reasonably simple. But the story of Icarus goes like this. He was the son of a master craftsman called Daedalus who had created these wings that you could use to fly, built out of feathers and beeswax and various other materials. And because of that, they had the ability to fly. But the caution to his son that Daedalus gives to Icarus is this. He says, don't fly too low to the sea because they'll get wet and it'll fall apart. And don't fly too close to the sun. But of course, the son, being young and full of self-confidence, backs himself, flies too close to the sun. The wings come apart and he plunges into the sea and dies. And that's where we get the phrase when someone's done something a bit too risky that they've flown too close to the sun. That's where we get that story from. So that's the first one, and it's a warning and a cautionary tale about risk-taking and hubris and all of that. The second one is the story of Narcissus, and they're sort of, as there are with a lot of these mythologies, various versions, but one of them sort of goes that Narcissus was a man who was incredibly attractive, and at one time he drew the, the, the eye of a nymph named Echo, and she approached him, but he kind of rebuffed her advance, and Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, witnessed this happen, And as punishment for Narcissus, cursed him to fall in love with himself. And so he actually gets a glimpse of his own reflection and becomes so obsessed with his own image that he dies staring into his own reflection in water. Now these two mythologies, I reckon, would represent the different fears that two generations have had about the kids that they're raising. I would say parents from like maybe the 60s, even earlier onwards, were worried that kids would blow up their lives, would explode their lives through risk-taking behavior. It was the, fear, the generation who feared sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But now it's almost the opposite. The fear is that not the kids are going to explode their lives, but that they'll implode their lives. The fear is that not that they'll take too many risks, but that they won't take any at all. The fear isn't that they're going to fly too close to the sun, but that they'll never leave their bedrooms to even see the sun. And that it'll be a generation who collapsed like narcissists in a world of selfies and selfness and self-concern and all the anxiety that goes with it. We worry for our teenage girls that social media and obsession with image and comparison will destroy them and that our boys will dive into an online world of video games never to come out again. 
And that rather than explode in their lives like the previous generation, the fears that went with that, our concern is that they'll disappear inside themselves. But it's also worth observing that every generation looks at the previous generation or the one below them and thinks, gosh, these guys are so much more self-obsessed and da-da-da than we are. But the truth is, in a Western culture, this idea and this focus on the self started a long time before this generation and will continue a long time after. I think all of us, not just the next generation, will struggle with the idea or with the, the challenge of being about something that's beyond ourselves, that's not just about ourselves, to not live lives that are devoted to ourselves and our own comfort and our own immediate needs, wants and desires. And so what difference does Jesus make into this? As these parents who are dedicating their kids here today are looking to raise them in? Well, it's that Jesus tells us that we are part of a story that's much bigger than ourselves, that goes beyond even our national borders, that goes beyond ourselves and across the whole globe. That we're a part of his work to bring people together from every tribe, nation and tongue. And that to follow him is to be a part of a story that started long before you and will continue long after you. And to know the gospel of Jesus is to know a story that is ultimately not about the self, but sacrificing the self for the good of others. And so that's what we're diving into as we get into Acts chapter 1. And the very first sentence of the book explains what this whole thing is going to be about. In the first sentence of the book, we read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We know from history that this book was written and penned by a guy called Luke, who was a physician or a doctor in the first century. He was incredibly detail-oriented, and his concern was to write an account of Jesus' life, which in the Bible is called the book of Luke, which, which explains his life, his ministry, his teaching, and his death and resurrection. And he was fastidious about dates and times and places so that people would be able to verify, is this account of Jesus real? But he also wrote a second volume that we're reading right now called the book of Acts. And he starts it by saying, look, the first one I wrote you was all, all about what Jesus began to do. But this book is about what he's going to continue to do through his people, the church, as he sends them out on mission. And it's interesting because the whole of the book of Acts is meant to focus on Jesus and what he is doing and not so much on what his people are doing. The book of Acts is called the book of Acts because it's short for the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But the truth of it is that it's not so much about the Acts of the Apostles, those people that Jesus sent out, but about Jesus himself. And it's interesting because it's typical of us to read a story and to read ourselves as the main character almost. I don't know if anyone else here is guilty of this, but if you've ever been watching a major sporting event, and for me most recently it was the, was the, the last World Cup, and during it, I desperately, and look, I hope this doesn't divide people, I don't know where everyone's from and all that sort of thing, but I desperately wanted Argentina to win, mostly because I wanted Leo Messi, the greatest player of all time, and there isn't any debate about that, to win. But if you know what happened in the World Cup, they were winning, and by some margin, and then it all started to unravel. And when it did start to unravel, the thought went through my mind that this is all because I got my hopes up. Now, just to give some context to this sporting event, FIFA released the numbers of how many people were watching this event. And according to them, and their stats are not great, but according to them, of the 7 billion people in the world that there are, 19 billion were watching it. So I don't know whether we can believe that or not. But anyway, the numbers were staggering as to how many people were watching this event. 
But I love the fact that even during it, I had the thought that even though there are billions of people watching this around the world, and even though there are skilled professionals on the field playing this game, that what it really may come down to is me in my living room in Lilyfield and the fact that I got my hopes up because I wanted them to win. That's ultimately what's going to decide the, the outcome of this event. But look, all of us have done things like that. Or maybe it's, it's something different. Maybe it's with the weather and you've planned an outdoor event and then the weather kind of turns bad and you're like, this has all happened because just to ruin my day. Like kilotons of water have been organized to cover a vast amount of territory just to ruin your particular afternoon. The truth of it is that we have this natural inclination to see ourselves as the center of the story. And it's the same in the book of Acts. That the story really centers on Jesus. That he is God and it centers on his claims through the gospel. And the whole story is going to be about he, how he will bring his purposes about through his people. And that's where we get the reading that Anna read out before from Acts 1, 6-8, where we read this interaction with Jesus and his small group of disciples. And it starts this way. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At this point, he was talking to some first century Jewish men who were all from the Israelite nation. And at this point, Israel was a, a nation that had fallen from prominence. At one time, they were the greatest power in the ancient Near East. But then empire after empire had swept through, and now they were kind of a broken people. First it was the Babylonians, whose capital was centered in modern-day Iraq. Then it was the Persian Empire that swept through, and their capital was sort of modern-day Iran. Then it was the Greeks, and, and at the time Jesus is speaking, it's the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people at this, at this point felt like a, a, a very small nation on its last legs. And they've come to know Jesus and believe that he is Lord and God. And so they're like, look, you have all the power in the universe. Is this the time when you are going to make Israel great again? When everyone will come to us? When the way that you will further your purposes in the world is that everyone's going to come to us and be like us? And Jesus answers the question by saying, actually, no. It's going to be the opposite. It's not that I'm going to use my power to bring everyone to you, but I'm going to send all of you out. This is a new mission. And what he says there is, he says, I'm going to send you from Jerusalem, which was the Israel, Israelite capital, to Judea, which is the surrounding region, to Samaria, which is just further north. And then he just goes to the end. He could have kept going region after region. Then he goes just, and then to the end of the earth. And when we hear that, we just hear cities and regions, as if Jesus was saying, you know, I'm going to send you from Sydney to New South Wales to Australia to the end of the earth. But that wouldn't have been what their ancient ears would have heard. So Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel in the region called Judea. And to the north was Samaria. And there was bitter history between these two regions because they used to be a single country. The country split in half. And the two halves, as they so often do, bitterly despised one another. The southern kingdom saw the northern uh, people as kind of compromised. They'd gone with other ethnic groups and different religions. And then the north had allied with other nations to destroy the south. And so there was a long-standing history between them. And so saying Judea and Samaria isn't like just rattling off region names. It's a bit more like to give some kind of modern context. It'd be saying... 
say that Jesus was standing in Ukraine and saying, I'm sending you out from Kiev to Crimea to Russia to the ends of the earth. It would have had that more sense to it. You would hear it kind of differently. And so what would compel this small group of, of followers of Jesus to actually do that? To cross these difficult ethnic divides and to, to go out and to share this message that Jesus called them to? was because they understood the gospel. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. That is, you'll testify to the fact that I died and rose again, that I died in your place so that you could be reunited to God, and you're going to go out now and tell other people about it. That it's, a, it's ultimately a message that will advance, that God will build his kingdom, not through power, not through religious sites, not through temples, not through cultural worship but actually by sending his people out with a message. And the unique thing about Christianity is that ultimately it is good news, not good advice. The gospel literally just means this kind of shorthand for good news. And the difference between good news and good advice is that good news is about something that's already happened and good advice is about something you need to do. Most major religions would offer what is advice, that is to say, if you do these things, you'll be able to connect with God or you'll be able to you know, move to the next stage of enlightenment. But ultimately, Christianity is about good news. This is something that has happened in the past that changes everything right now. That ultimately, Jesus is sending them out saying, look, tell them of what I've done. That it's not about what you have to do in order to make a connection with God, but actually that God himself has taken the initiative and send Jesus in our place to die in our place so that we can have a relationship with God. This is the good news. And because the love of God has so transformed the lives of these followers and those who began in the early church, it actually moves them to then take this message out to regions where people there would be considered their enemies and to go and love and serve them just like Jesus loved and served them. And it transformed lives not just in the ancient Near East in the first century, but continues to even through to today. I shared this illustration with you last year, but a photo is going to come up of Kashar Thomas, who was attending an anti-racism rally in Ann Arbor in 1996. That's when this photo is from. And they were protesting the presence of the KKK in the city, and a man walked past with a Confederate flag and an SS tattoo. And the crowd pursued him and began to attack him. And Kashai, who was only a teenager at the time, just keep that in mind, jumped on him, not to assault him, but to actually protect him. And a nearby photographer, who was kind of a, a journalist who was, who was um, recording the event, captured the moment. And it was a shocking act of courage from this teenager. But I think the photographer Brunner captured it best when he said this. He said, she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. And he says, who in the world does that? Well, she did it because she believes in a God who would do the same. And her reflection on this act was that it was worth it, that it was an act of grace that potentially ended a violent cycle that may have continued. She actually recounts the time when, after this event, a man approached her in a coffee shop to thank her for what happened. And obviously, in her asking what he was thanking her for, he revealed that he was the son of the man that she had actually protected. 
And on this, she said, for the most part, people who hurt come from hurt. It's a cycle. Let's say they had killed his dad or hurt him really bad. How does the son feel? Does he carry on the violence? Her act of courage and self-sacrifice was based on the courage of the self-sacrifice of Jesus that she had experienced. It was an act of grace leading to more grace that ended potentially a violent cycle. Jesus sends his disciples out in this first chapter of Acts saying, you are going to go out and love your enemies just like I have. That as Jesus taught his disciples to love their enemies, he modeled it for them. And they are so transformed by his love that they go out and continue this. That they continue to share this. And so the gospel goes out from this region, from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And part of why we are here in Sydney, Australia talking about it is because that continued on through his people throughout the ages. And because of this, Christianity has expanded differently to all of the other major world religions. In reflecting on how it is that Jesus' words in Acts 1 have played out over time, Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, this. He says, The pattern of Christian expansion differs from every other world religion. The center and majority of Islam's population is still in its place of origin, the Middle East. The original lands that have been the demographic centers of the major world religions have remained so. By contrast, Christianity was first dominated by Jews and centered in Jerusalem. Later, it was dominated by Hellenists and centered in the Mediterranean. Later, the faith was received by the barbarians of Northern Europe and Christianity became dominated by Western Europeans and then North Americans. Today, most Christians in the world live in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Christianity soon will be centered in the southern and eastern hemispheres. The reason that it has moved over so many different cultural barriers and boundaries is because ultimately it's not about us, but it's about Jesus. It's about his message of love in the gospel, that God himself is a God who would sacrifice his own good for the good of others. And as this has transformed lives, it's crossed boundaries and countries and borders and continues to do so. And God calls his people to be a part of his great purposes all over the world. Now, and so what this means for followers of Jesus, they're part of a global family. They're actually part of a story that is much bigger than ourselves and much bigger than any one particular life. And that as God continues to do it, that he calls his people to live lives that are marked by the gospel that are marked not by the self, but about a concern to even sacrifice your own good for the good of others. And so the blessing of this is that it means we get to be a part of a diverse church family. That even though we gather here in Sydney, we're connected to a church family that's all over the world. And more than that, that even as we celebrate dedications and families here, that families are not just to be about their own good, but are to be outward-facing. That as the gospel transforms our lives, it leads us to have the conviction that our lives are not meant to be just about us. That as we raise up the next generation, it's under the message that Christ has loved you and poured out his love upon you and calls you to do the same. And this transforms things massively. Let me finish with this, uh, with this just last illustration. Uh, around, it was a little earlier than this time, but last year, we, begin, we began getting updates from a family who were based in the Ukraine and had been there for a number of years. Oh, sorry, in Ukraine. 
uh, the family's name were the Gollans, and they're actually in Sydney at the moment. And if you're here in a part of church, um, you'll, you'll, you'll hear details in the coming weeks of an opportunity to meet them and hear a little bit about what's been going on in the region that they're in. But they had headed over there to take this message of the gospel to another context. Uh, and when the war broke out, they imagined, like so many people, that it was going to be a quick affair, that perhaps within two weeks was the expectation that the Russian forces would have made their way to the, the capital and potentially that the invasion would have been over that fast. So they started making preparations to get out of the country and moving to a border that would be easier to cross. But as the war became a protracted thing, and as they saw the needs of the people around them, they felt called to stay. Even though they themselves were not Ukrainian by nationality, they'd become so much a part of the church family and the brothers and sisters there, and the need of their neighbours around them, that they felt compelled to stay. They converted the church space into a kind of a makeshift shelter for a time, distributing food and needs and offering accommodation for those who were fleeing and moving through the city and have continued on staying there. And their reflection on it was this, that they felt called to love in the way that Jesus had loved, that they had every reason and every right reason to move and to leave and to be out of there, but felt called to love and serve people for the name of Christ in that context. The love of Jesus in the gospel transforms lives. And not everyone here is going to move to Ukraine, I imagine, after this. But it is the case that everyone who follows him is called to love like Jesus loved. That these families are called to love their kids as Christ has. And that every follower of Christ is called to demonstrate this love to those around them. To point to Jesus and to point to the fact that there is a love in this universe that transforms lives and that is like no other. That God has entered human history and the story of human history. And what he has said matters so much that it's worth witnessing to here and to the ends of the earth. And so I'm going to pray that as a church family, we would hear Jesus' words and be moved by it. And as we respond to the gospel, that it would demonstrate a love that is like no other in the universe. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus, that he entered into human history, that he died a death on our behalf, that he made a way for new life, and that in him we experience your love. And Father, we pray that our lives would be transformed by this, and that we would see ourselves as a part of a global family that you are calling together from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Father, we pray that in this, that you would be glorified as your people lay down their lives for one another and for those around them. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.